0: Thank you for listening to sermons from South City Church. Our mission as a church is to demonstrate God's greatness by advancing a gospel that transforms people into fully devoted followers of Jesus. For more information on South City Church, please visit us at SouthCityMKE.com or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SouthCityMKE. Last Sunday while we were uh, gathered here for worship, so did First Baptist Church in Southern London. Texas, along with uh, millions of other churches across the globe. During their Sunday morning service, however, Devin Patrick Kelly opened fire on their congregation, killing 26 of them. The Holcomb family was a tight-knit family that attended First Baptist Church in Sutherland. In one incident, eight of them were dead. Brian and Carla Holcomb, a guest preacher, and his wife were dead. The son, Mark Daniel Holcomb, was dead. Their pregnant daughter-in-law, Christom Holcomb, and her unborn child had died. And four of their grandchildren, Noah, Emily, Megan, and Greg, gone. The gunmen had nearly wiped out the entire, the entire family. Left now is grandpa, great-grandpa, actually, Joe Holcomb, leaving Joe to mourn the loss of generations he had raised and watched grow up. Generations of sons, daughters-in-laws, grandchildren that he had sat on his knee, he loved, and he cared for. And this isn't just some made-up story. As we know, this is, this is, these are real people. And this happened just a week ago. We can only begin to imagine the sort of grief and pain, the sense of desperation, the despair. Generations, young lives that with seemingly years to live still, that are now gone. You can't get them back. Your family, the ones that you love the most, taken from you. What hope is there for Joe? What resolution does his Christian faith provide? Does Christianity even have an answer to this? What good is a faith, what good is your God, if it doesn't stop things like this from happening? The seeming pointlessness of it all. Is is a situation like this even redeemable. And not to this level of severity, I imagine, but I'm sure we could go one by one through this room identifying areas where we too have suffered, where we've experienced great loss, where maybe we've even been mistreated for our faith. Does our suffering mean that God is weak or that evil is somehow outside of his grasp? These are the same sort of questions that Peter is addressing in our text today. 1 Peter 3, 18-22. 1 Peter 3, 18-22. As we've been working our way through this chapter, Peter's been dealing with the question of suffering and mistreatment. And up until this point, he's been particularly concerned with our response. How are we, as believers, as followers of Christ, to respond to mistreatment? What does it look like for us to face evil and suffer well? Now, here in verses 18 through 22, Peter puts that suffering and that evil in its proper context. He directs our gaze to Christ himself, the one who has absolute victory over evil and suffering, any that we might face. In these verses, Peter is going to show us how Christ has defeated evil. Christ has victory over any evil or any suffering that we might face. Not some pie-in-the-sky sort of victory, not some sort of positive, wishful thinking to trick ourselves into feeling better in our suffering, but real, actual, historical victory over the evil we face. And the point is this, that at the feet of Christ's victory, the threat of evil, dissipates. We are no longer intimidated, we no longer cower, we no longer fear, but we live with a confident hope even as we suffer in Christ's ultimate victory over evil. This certainty, this confident hope that we have, this apprehension of the supremacy of Christ over all things that might threaten us, This enables us to do just what Peter has been calling us to do, to suffer faithfully. As Peter portrays Christ's victory, this vision of our Savior arouses hope and fosters in us a resolve to suffer well. We can live with abandon and sacrifice, be mistreated, face the loss of any kind to any extent, because in so doing, we are not losing. It's not a waste. It's not pointless. It's not the final word. It's not unredeemable on account of the absolute certainty of Christ's victory. Throw anything at us, even death itself, and it will not mean our defeat because of the guarantee of the victory we have in Christ. On the slide this morning, I have what is my own translation of today's passage, which will help us um, as we work through the passage today. Let's read 1 Peter three eighteen through 22 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the one who is righteous on behalf of those who are unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Wherein he went and preached to the spirits in prison because they had formally disobeyed when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of filth from the flesh, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who went into heaven, and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers being made subject to Him. Today's passage, as you can probably tell, is a rather difficult text uh, in terms of how we interpret it, how we try to understand the details, and. Many people actually consider this to be one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. Because of this, this sermon today might be a little bit different in the sense that a lot of what we'll be doing is simply trying to understand what the text means and what it's saying. And I should also say that because it's a difficult text, people have a lot of different views on the passage. Uh, But for the sake of time... I'm not going to be able to get into all those different interpretations today, although outside of this sermon, I'm more than willing to discuss those things and maybe we can talk more in our community groups. Rather, what I'll be doing today as we, is, is walking through the text as best as I understand it. And hopefully by the end, my, my desire is that you would see that the interpretation that I'm taking is one that makes a lot of sense of the text and is compelling. As we go through, of course, then we'll take time to consider the weight of this text and what it means for our lives. Let's pray. God, we ask that through this text, we would be able to understand the details well, knowing that this is a text that is a little bit difficult for us to understand. We ask for your guidance, for you to give us uh, the grace to understand and an attentiveness to focus on what is being said. But ultimately, we ask that this would not merely be an exercise in which we can rightly interpret a difficult text and we can know how to think through a passage, but ultimately that we would gain a vision of the victorious Christ presented in this text that would capture our hearts, our desires, our imagination, our vision of the world so that we get a glimpse behind the scenes of what is really going on in our suffering, who our Savior is, and that this would empower us then to do exactly what the book of First Peter calls us to do, to live as sojourners who suffer well as a marginalized people in the midst of a crooked society. We ask for your grace towards that end this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So we begin in verse 18 where first what we see is that we resolve to suffer well because Christ has triumphed over suffering. We resolve to suffer well because Christ has triumphed over suffering. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the one who is righteous on behalf of those who are unrighteous, in order that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In verse 17, Peter told us that it is better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And here, now in this section, he provides us the reason, the rationale. Why is it better to suffer? Peter begins in verse 18. He says, For. For this reason, because Christ himself suffered unjustly. And this passage, and this is what the passage talks about, it says that he was the righteous one, the sinless, dying in the place of sinners, not because he deserved it, but for their sin, that they might be forgiven and reconciled to God. Now, Peter could have chosen any word, to describe this. He could have said, for Christ also died for sins. And that would have been quite clear because that's obviously what he means. But rather, notice that Peter deliberately uses the word suffering because he wants to make clear the connection between Christ's suffering and our own. That Christ's suffering is a pattern It's an example for our own. We can suffer, we can suffer unjustly because Christ himself suffered unjustly. And this is a key assumption throughout the passage that we need to understand here. That Peter is assuming a link between Christ and ourselves. That what is true of Christ is therefore true of us. So, on the one hand, if Christ is one who suffers, then that entails our own calling to suffer. As chapter 4 will speak of, we share in Christ's suffering. As Peter has said throughout the book, that we're called to follow his example, to embrace his pattern of suffering. But on the other hand, when Christ is triumphant over evil and triumphant over suffering, so too that victory is our victory on account of what he's done. And this is precisely what Christ does. Not only leaving us a path of suffering, but kicking that suffering square in the teeth. As verse 18 says, being put to death in the flesh, but what? Made alive resurrected, raised from death in the Spirit. Christ leaves us a path of suffering, following his footsteps, but the suffering we face along this path is a defeated enemy. Christ has triumphed over suffering, having triumphed over the greatest expression of suffering and misery and evil, death itself. Don't let the prohibit you from feeling the weight of what's going on here. Christ was dead, and then he was not. He was raised from death itself. What this means is that we can boldly, confidently, and resolutely suffer the loss of all things, face any mistreatment of any severity, endure all pain and affliction because of the confidence of resurrection with Christ. Throw any of those things at us, we can suffer all things because it's nothing that a good resurrection can't fix. This means God can redeem out of the most dire situations. That if God can redeem out of death itself, raising Christ from the dead, then certainly he is able to redeem out of any situation in which we find ourselves. If this life was it, and ours was a life of suffering, then we are to be pitied above all people. But rather, we can resolve to, re- resolve, resolve to suffer well and endure suffering because this present life is not the final word. Resurrection is. And the pattern that we see here that Christ lays out for us is one of suffering on the pathway to glory. Sharing in Christ's suffering on the pathway to sharing with Christ in his resurrection. It is better to suffer for doing good, Peter says, as Christ has, because in so doing we follow Christ on his pathway to glory. And as we do so, we follow one who himself has suffered the full weight of suffering. able then, as the author of Hebrews says, to sympathize with us in our own. We continue now to verses 19 through 20 where we see Christ's victory over evil forces. We resolve to suffer well because Christ is victorious over forces of evil. We resolve to suffer well because Christ is victorious over forces of evil. Having won the day and triumphed over suffering and evil in his resurrection, Jesus then pronounces and proclaims that victory. 1 Peter 3.19, wherein, that is, having triumphed in his resurrection, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Peter mentions these spirits to whom uh, Christ preached, a word that, uh, how we see it used elsewhere in the New Testament, is then likely referring to angelic beings, or in this case, fallen angels, demons, now who are imprisoned. And this is confirmed by verse 22, where Peter will use the same verb as he does here. Christ went to describe Christ's ascension, and then victory over what? Angelic beings. We are helped by how Peter describes the the fallen angels here. In verse 20, he describes them as those who were imprisoned, in verse 20, because they had formally disobeyed when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being built, in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. The spirits here seem to be fallen angels or demons who are specifically described as having been rebelled, as having rebelled against God during the time of Noah. And we find elsewhere passages in the New Testament that seem to convey the same idea that draw on this traditional view that we find in the Jewish literature at the time of certain fallen angels now having been imprisoned by God who were rebellious during Noah's time. Turning your bibles to 2 Peter 2:4. 2, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4. Just one book over. Keep in mind, this is Peter here, the same author, the same individual. What does he say in verse 4? He says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. Okay, we have these fallen angels who have sinned and they're now in prison and kept for final judgment. And notice here too how they're associated with the time of Noah in verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Turn to Jude, verse 6. Okay, a little bit farther back in the New Testament, right before the book of Revelation. Jude 6. Jude verse 6. Verse 6 says this, and the angels who did not stay within their position, own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Okay, again we see rebellious angels now imprisoned for God's by God for judgment. Okay, notice how the angels then are described because this will be important for what follows. They are described as those, in verse 6, who left their proper dwelling place. And, in verse 7, indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural sexual desires. Okay, turn now to Genesis 6. Genesis 6, the first book of the Bible, chapter 6. You see, the traditional Jewish view at the time that these New Testament texts seem to be picking up on was one that interpreted the sons of God here in Genesis 6 as fallen angels who rebelled against God and, and in some way, maybe by taking possession of human bodies, they had sexual relations with these daughters of men. Genesis 6, verse 2. The sons of God... "...saw the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any as they chose." Verse 4, "...when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore them children." This would be the rebellion of which Second Peter and Jude speak. This would be the unnatural sexual relations to which Jude alludes. And notice how the passage occurs right before the story of Noah. Describing this rebellion, like Peter, as having occurred during the time of Noah. But here's the thing. Even if you don't take this particular view of Genesis 6, you don't find it convincing, our interpretation here doesn't hinge on this. I bring this up to show you what I think is the likely background to what Peter is describing. The weight of how these texts work together feels compelling. But to understand 1 Peter as we're understanding it, you don't necessarily have to take Genesis 6 or any of these other passages this way. But I show you that nonetheless. And while we're at it, as an aside, regarding a popular view of this passage, 1 Peter 3, where there's this idea of Christ descending into hell, The interpretation of this passage that I'm presenting here simply wouldn't see any sort of descent into hell as being mentioned in the text, or for that matter, anything about what occurred between Christ's death and resurrection. Okay, you'll notice Peter is not describing what happened between Christ's death and resurrection, but what happened after his resurrection. In verse 18, Christ is resurrected. Then, in verse 19, having been resurrected, it is at this point, having achieved that victory of resurrection, that he goes and he proclaims that victory. The moment of proclaiming victory seems to be bound up with, actually, his ascension. In verse 19, it says that Christ went and proclaimed... And in verse 22, that same word is used here, referring to his ascension. And he went into heaven. And in both places, in verse 19 and 22, his authority over angelic forces are in view. The preaching here, then, that Christ does in verse 19 is not somehow some sort of preaching where these fallen angels, or humans, for that matter, might be given a second chance to be saved, or a chance to be saved at all for angels. Rather, it is Christ's proclamation of his victory and triumph over them. It is a pronouncement of their condemnation and their defeat. So why does Peter bring all this up? What's the point of mentioning demons from Noah's time period? What does this have to do with our suffering? The point is this. Christ's victory over these evil angels is to be seen as exemplary, as a testimony of his victory over all forces of evil. If Christ is victorious over primordial forces of evil, such as demons from the earliest of creation and human history, if Christ has conquered them, then surely Christ can conquer and has victory over any force of evil that might threaten us. Any sort of evil or affliction that we face. The assumption is this, that, that the evil Christ conquers here, these demonic beings is of the same sort of evil that lies behind the suffering and mistreatment that we face as Christians. If Christ is conquering authority over the one, then certainly nothing that we face is beyond his control. Nothing can come against us that is not already defeated. Nothing can threaten us that is is somehow outside of the purview of his grasp. In our suffering, despite any seeming appearances, we have not been surrendered over. With temporal eyes, we look at suffering and we see loss and defeat. But here in this text, we've been given a glimpse behind the curtain and we see that Christ is in control. Jesus reigns. We only face defeated foes. As we move now to verse 21, we see this connection between Christ's victory and our rescue and security made even more clear. This connection between Christ's victory and our rescue and security. Peter says, speaking of Noah and God's judgment, during those times, just as the faithful were saved in those days, so too believers today will be saved. As such, we resolve to suffer well, verse 21, because our rescue is sure. We resolve to suffer well, verse 21, because our rescue is sure. Verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, literally is an antitype to this, now saves you not as the removal of filth from the flesh, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. First, we need to take some time to understand what Peter means by baptism saves you. We know from a broader understanding of Scripture that salvation is by God's grace, something that God gives us as a gift, not something that we can achieve, purchased for us by the death of Christ. Furthermore, we know that the way we receive this salvation is nothing other than faith. Trusting, leaning not on ourselves, but solely on what Christ has done. This then creates a guard for us from viewing the ritual of baptism itself as something that saves. No, okay? Faith is the instrument by which we're saved. Not on any basis of any sort of ritual, but on account of Christ alone. And this is actually exactly how Peter describes it. Right after saying baptism saves, notice he adds the clarifying remark, not as a removal of filth from the flesh. In other words, it's not the ritual itself. It's not the act of immersing someone underwater as if water itself has these sort of magical powers to it. Furthermore, when Peter says not as a removal of filth from the flesh, there's a chance that what he means is actually that baptism isn't an act that removes our sinfulness from us. That is, baptism is not a removal of moral filth from our sinful flesh. Our sinful tendencies. What does he say, though, is this. Baptism saves, dot, 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 in as much as it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. That is, in as much as undergoing baptism is an expression of our faith. Faith in a salvation that baptism itself is depicting. Peter speaks of an appeal to God. This is an act of faith. We could think of Romans 10 where he says that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's what he says is going on in baptism. It's this appeal to God. It's a calling upon God for a good conscience, Peter says. whereas we might say today, we might say a clean conscience, forgiveness of sins, salvation, so far from being any sort of text that supports the idea that the ritual of baptism is saving in and of itself, this passage actually teaches just the opposite. It's not the act itself, but faith and on account of Christ. So let's pause here and take notice then that the reason the Bible will sometimes speak of baptism in saving terms, like it does here, is not because the ritual— The ritual itself has any sort of saving effect, but because baptism is bound up with faith. You see, at the time of the New Testament, if you became a believer, you were baptized. And so faith and baptism were associated and tied at the hip. So as at times to speak of the one is to infer and assume the other. Peter continues... The true saving reality is what lies behind baptism. What baptism itself symbolizes, being united to Christ in his death and resurrection. Peter himself says, baptism saves you through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism symbolizes the believer's union with Christ. Okay, Going under the water symbolizes burial and being united with Christ in his death. What this communicates is that what Christ achieved in his death is yours by nature of faith. Likewise, being raised out of the water symbolizes sharing with Christ in his resurrection. This is what saves through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, as Peter says, the very thing that baptism is symbolizing. The reason Peter brings all this up is because he's making a connection to us. Our salvation, symbolized in baptism, he says, corresponds to God's salvation of Noah and his family at the time of the flood. In the flood, God executed judgment, and yet Noah and his family were spared that judgment as they rode safely through it in the ark. So too for us, God executes his judgment on sin and we pass safely through it in Christ who bears that punishment for us. Baptism, Peter says, is a symbol of this. In baptism, we're immersed under the water, waters of judgment, depicting our union with Christ in his death and the punishment he bore, God's judgment. But as Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we emerge from these judgment waters unharmed, with a clean conscience. We emerge from waters, judgment waters of baptism because we are bound up with Christ, and he has taken that judgment in our place. The reason Peter brings this up again is because he wants us to see a connection between Christ's victory in this passage and our own salvation. Throughout this section, Peter's been describing the victory and triumph of Christ. But here, he wants us to see that not only is Christ victorious, but that that victory is our salvation. And he makes this connection by linking our baptism to the waters of the flood. Just as Noah and his family were saved, as God triumphed over evil, and he judged evil, and he executed his judgment through the flood, so too Christ triumphs over evil, and as he does so, we are saved. Just as in Noah's day, God will subdue and judge those who rebel against him while saving those who trust him. God's judgment is coming. The judgment of the flood is only a foretaste and a foreshadow of the ultimate judgment that awaits humanity. Our suffering, our affliction and mistreatment, despite appearances, then, is not the final word. As Peter says in verse 20, God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And yet God's patience did not mean his indifference. So to today, God's patience towards those who mistreat us does not mean his, his indifference towards our suffering. He cares, and he will execute judgment. And so we resolve to live righteously, just like Noah, in the midst of an immoral society. We resolve, like Noah, to witness, to be a herald of righteousness, as he's called in 2 Peter. And we do this even if we're a small Minority, marginalized community, as Peter describes Noah in his family in verse 20, a few, even just eight persons, that we resolve to suffer well knowing that our salvation is sure. Finally, in verse 22, we resolve to suffer well because Christ reigns. We resolve to suffer well because Christ reigns. Verse 22 who, that is Jesus Christ, went into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers being made subject to him. Peter has addressed Christ's death and then his resurrection, and now here he completes the movement and he brings up Christ's ascension. The language here is of Christ's enthronement, That Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He has been appointed king. The language of authorities and powers here is used elsewhere throughout the New Testament, again, to refer to angelic beings. The idea is this, that as king, as we've already seen, all angelic beings are made subject to Christ. He reigns and he has authority over them. The question then, of course, is how has Christ gained this authority over them? And, of course, in one sense, we know that Jesus, as God, has always had authority over them. But there's another sense in which he's actually gained an additional authority over them. He has achieved our salvation to their defeat. In Hebrews 2.14 says, the author of Hebrews describes the devil, who is, of course, the supreme fallen angel. He describes the devil as, as one who has a certain authority or power over us because of death. Well, here in this text, we see that Christ has defeated death through his resurrection. Christ has risen from the grave, thereby conquering death itself. And in this victory that Christ has achieved is our victory. Over death. And so we with Paul can say, Death, where's your sting? Where's your victory grave? Where's your power? It's gone now. And so, for example, those believers in Texas who died, they died victorious. This is why the church is not intimidated by your guns. You can throw anything at us. You can afflict us with anything, abuse us, take away everything we have, even kill us, and you can't beat us because we will be raised with Christ. This is why the book of Revelation can refer to those who are martyred for Christ as those who have conquered, conquering in their dying. This enables us, again, to live with a radical, sacrificial abandonment. We don't have to live making an idol out of our own self-preservation and our self-security, but as Christ says, we don't fear those who can merely kill the body, we fear him who can kill and destroy body and soul. Turn to Colossians 2, verses 14 through 15. Colossians 2, a little bit back into, into Paul's epistles. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, or Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 2:14 through 15 The other way that Christ has defeated demonic forces is by canceling our sin. Colossians 2:14 says this that Christ canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in so doing, verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities, these demonic forces again, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The devil is described as the great accuser. Our sin is a weapon in his hand to condemn us before God. Christ has gained victory over demonic forces by canceling our debt of sin on the cross. Peter Peter says this, that Christ has died for our sins. The righteous one, the sinless one, dying in the place of sinners for their sin. No more can those who are in Christ be condemned, as Paul says in Romans 8. We have an assurance. There's no longer this fear of condemnation or this accusation that the devil can wield against us. He is now disarmed by the cross, as Colossians says. And all of this, we're reminded, is so that we might be brought back into a right relationship with God. And so for those who have not yet experienced that, we call them to trust in Christ. And for those who have, we continue to trust in Christ, that before God In our sin, sin, we stand condemned, and we deserve, and we are subject to the judgment of God. But we're reminded in this text, through Christ's victory over the forces of evil, that he has triumphed by taking that judgment for us. We partake in his victory over evil, including that of our own.